This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Danielle Price. From criminal kidnappings to political brinkmanship, hostage-taking is a tragic business that captivates newsreaders and fills the plots of thrillers. And as has been seen in recent years, it can be a core element of high-stakes wars. But far from the dramatic scenes played out in movies and TV series, what actually happens during these negotiations? How do hostage negotiators build rapport and trust and come to agreements with kidnappers? And how are these same tactics used in lower-stakes negotiations that we have all the time in our regular lives? Common sense tells us that some people are better negotiators than others, and research now supports this idea, too. In part two of this program, we'll hear about this research and how we can use it to improve how we perform in and feel about negotiating. But first, we'll be hearing how a hostage negotiator and former hostage used these tactics in real life. In these two parts of this Peace Talks radio episode, correspondent Daniel Price will talk with three guests who know the world of hostage-taking and negotiations intimately from different perspectives. In our first part, we'll hear from Sue Williams, a British hostage negotiator who's worked on some of the highest-profile and most dangerous hostage situations across the world. While working as a detective with Scotland Yard, Sue was the most senior-ranking officer in charge of the kidnap and hostage negotiation units. Sue now works mainly with humanitarian organizations as a negotiator and crisis response advisor, supporting situations when local staff have been kidnapped within their homes and countries. But first, we're going to hear from Thomas Olsen from northern Sweden. Thomas is a former humanitarian worker who now supports safety and security for humanitarians operating in high-risk contexts, in part by sharing his story during trainings. In early December 2013, while doing humanitarian work in Syria, Thomas was kidnapped by Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate active in that country. Thomas and a Swedish friend he was with were stopped at a checkpoint. They figured they would be held for a few days, but expected to be home by Christmas. It would ultimately take a year and a half before their release was negotiated. During that time, the two men were mostly in the dark about what was going on to secure their release. Here's Danielle Price speaking with Thomas Olson about his experience. When did uh, when did you realize that you were in a kidnapping situation? Let's say that is it, it. We were captured in the beginning of December 2013, but it took up to one week before we really um, recognized that we were kidnapped. Mm. And did you have any sense at that time of of how long this this might go on for? No, of course uh, we or I, I thought that uh, it would be a quick solution on the problem. So I thought uh, maybe before our departure back to Sweden, uh, I think it was the sixth of of December, something like that. So a few days. What did you do to calm your thoughts and and get through the experience emotionally? I used a lot of meditation. Uh, I would say that I'm a Christian as well, so I had a lot of, I would say, positive Bible verses, positive imaginations of the future, about family, and what we usually say called a safe place. So I used a lot of time uh, meditating on positive things, uh, specifically when mm. there were a lot of stress and uh, things going uh, on around. Mm. And were there things that you felt like helped you in dealing with the people who were holding you, like in terms of how you communicated with people or um, trying to use different techniques yourself in that communication? One thing was to care, 
to try to feel some kind of empathy with uh, their cause, but not just the cause, but also uh, uh, individuals. Uh, many of them were hurt. They lost uh, family members. So it helped a lot to try to feel empathy with them, even though, of course, I did not agree what they were doing. Uh, but I think that helped a lot, sharing things, sharing belongings, sharing food. Yeah, try to care about them as well, even though uh, it was hard, of course. Yeah. Were you able to to get to a point where you did feel genuine empathy? Uh, of course, of course. I mean, we, we could hear the bombings uh, all around, uh, the barrel bombs uh, going down on the villages around. We saw quite a few people injured. So um, it was not hard at all to to feel some kind of empathy with them. No, not at all. Hmm. Was there anything else that you um, felt like you did in terms of the way that you did communicate with them. So not just in your thoughts and feelings, but also about how you you would speak. And did you, you know, kind of like employ any strategies in in your communication style? Yes, uh, I think so. Of course, it was hard to communicate with uh, everyone. Uh, so you need to choose and uh, determine during time who was credible to share things with and ask for things. So you had to build some kind of relationship with them. Some were bad, but some were also good. And when you felt there was someone that bit the hook, uh, you could um, um, try to communicate and build relationships with them. And uh, by the way, uh, all of them did not want to be in this situation. Either. So some were forced, even though they made a decision to stay, of course. And were were people sharing with you their their stories, like telling you about uh, how they had been forced into the situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it could be family relationships. It could be someone that ended up on the rain, wrong side of the checkpoint because they wanted to leave the area, but it was controlled by Javita uh, Nostra in this case. Um, did you have any contact with your family over this time? Uh, um, yes, in, in the sense that we had... Um, letters written to each other uh, maybe every second every third month we had some kind of communication they called it proof of lives uh, they want they wrote a message to to me and then i replied but it was uh, the basic things i love you i care for you uh, wish all the best for you and so on and so on were you able to to be honest in those letters or were you having to communicate in a calculated way in those letters as well uh, I was honest to the sense that um, uh, I wanted them to feel uh, support and be comfortable, even though they <laughs> were uh, comfortable. They were, did not risk their lives uh, in that sense. But, uh, uh, of course, I lied a little bit or gray lies or white lies or whatever you say. So uh, yeah. uh, honest to a degree, but uh, not all the time, no. Joining us today on Peace Talks Radio is Thomas Olson. Thomas Olson, I want to ask you some questions about hostage situations in general, based on your work and your experience. Mm -hmm. um, I know every situation is different, and there's probably no right way to respond. But what does tend to help people in these situations? Are there negotiation techniques or skills <coughs> that tend to help people get by and improve their situation at all? No, I, I think there are a few things. Uh, it's what I will call the survival strategies, like uh, meditating or something positive, uh, breathing techniques, uh, recognizing if your body tensed or not, 
uh, exercise as well, uh, have some kind of imagination in your head uh, to see the future, to see a good solution of the problems. Uh, that's uh, or, or hope, for example, take the small, small pieces and make something positive out of them. Um, uh, but also, of course, uh, I think it, it's a skill to build relationships. It's not just mm. to build, you can build bad relationships and you can build good relationships. You need to be a bit skilled as well. And do you think that that's that kind of like innate ability is something that uh, that helped you in this situation? Yes, of course, of course. Um, I mean, there's so many things. It, it could be to have a toilet visit, for example. Could be to have an extra piece of vegetables, go outside. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it helps a lot. It helped a lot. In, in terms of communicating, um, with, with kidnappers or, or people who are holding you, um, again, in a general sense, do you think that honesty works best or is there some level of, of calculated misdirection that, that can be useful? <clears throat> Uh, I, I don't know, but I do know that uh, I never lied. I did not tell the whole truth, truth uh, all the time. Uh, I know that they respected me because I was honest. I stood up for my faith, for example. I did not want to convert. Um, I was honest about my family, how I felt, uh, and so on and so on. So I do think it's for us, for me, it was important to stand up for what I believed in, uh, to keep my integrity. It's not just a way of behavior to get advantage, but it's also to live with your decisions and the things that you say and do. Thomas Olson, are there any skills that you gained from your experience that you use in your regular life now? <clears throat> I cannot say that I got new skills, but I now understand how important they are. Um, I mean, meditation, for example, keep a good, good view of the future. Um, visualization, keeping the hope, hope, look good on the future. Uh, take the small parts in life and try to make them to something important. Uh, maybe stop doing things that I didn't want to do. I did not feel that, that gave me anything. Um, mm. but try to do things that I really love that inspires me and gives me purpose. Your situation is obviously extremely unique. Um, most people listening to this will never experience anything close to what you went through. But are there skills or techniques that people can apply uh, in day-to-day -day situations in regular life? I'm thinking in terms of stress management or negotiating skills. Are there things um, you know that, that you think regular people could still incorporate into improving everyday situations? Yeah, yeah. Of, of course, I, I think to be happy over the small things. The small victories, so to say, the small celebrations. Uh, it's sunny today or, oh, fantastic, it's raining today for the farmers. Uh, relationships is another thing. Um, so have a good social network. Uh, know that someone is on your side and you are on their side. Um, exercise, breathing, and all those things that I already mentioned. But I will also recommend to have like a regular service as we send our cars to regular services. We should have someone to talk with on a regular basis for our mental, mental well-being as well. Thomas, when the general public learns about detention or hostage situations, 
we tend to know very, very little about what's going on behind the scenes. And there's often a, a sense that, you know, the government's not doing anything or the organization's not doing anything. Um, why is it that, that the general public hears so little about what's actually happening? Uh, one thing could be that from a hosted perspective, uh, of, of course, uh, it, it's we don't want to share our stories. We don't want to expose family members and so on as well. And uh, as a hostage, we don't know what's going on. Uh, we don't know what's happened. We just basically know that something has happened and now we are free. Um, Thomas, after your release, what have you done that's helped you to, I, I guess, not move on, but to make peace with with what had happened? I think many of the things that uh, I did in captivity helped me when I came back out to freedom. One thing is to forgive to a degree to who hurt you. Uh, and I think that caused me not to be bitter. Another positive thing was that to see that my family got the support that they really needed. It gave me, gave me hope in some uh, uh, points as well. Uh, writing was another thing that helped me uh, quite much regarding nightmares. If the nightmare was mm. bad, I wrote what I remembered and then I changed it to something positive. Maybe the last thing I will say that I had a very good social network uh, and I received help from a psychologist for about one and a half year after the incident. That was Thomas Olson speaking about his experience as a hostage of Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. Find more information about him and all of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. You can hear Danielle Price's entire interview with Thomas, too, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. And as we said earlier, next it's Sue Williams, a British hostage negotiator with Scotland Yard. She was the most senior-ranking officer in charge of the kidnap and hostage negotiation units. Sue now works mainly with humanitarian organizations as a negotiator and crisis response advisor, supporting situations when local staff have been kidnapped within their home countries. I think sometimes in the movies, you just get this husky disc jockey voice saying, talk to me, and, and that's, that's the beginning of it. Well, if only it were that easy. It doesn't work like that. There's lots of, um, lots of preparation in some of the movies I've seen. The negotiator tends to get involved in a lot of the decision making and a lot of other aspects where in real life, as the, if you are doing the negotiator role, you just stick to that role. You, you, you don't really have much involvement in other aspects of the response because your job is to build rapport and to get on with the, the hostage taker or whoever it is that is in crisis. Mm. And so that's one difference, the, the lack of preparation. But I guess that's, that's not really entertainment, is it? Watching somebody <laughs> prepare or watching somebody do a risk assessment is not really riveting entertainment. So I can understand why that's let, let out. How did you end up getting into this work in the first place? I was, um, I was a police officer and um, I knew that I wanted to become a detective. So I, um, I became a detective. And then I thought I wanted to investigate murders because I, I thought that would be the, the pinnacle of anyone's detective career. But along the way, somebody suggested, one of my senior officers suggested that I might be quite good at negotiation. And the funny thing is the reason that he gave 
was because he said I talked a lot. And anybody that knows anything about negotiation knows that it's it's not about talking. It, it's about listening. Mm. But he was right. I um, It did work for me. I felt like a round peg in a round hole once that um, once I did, discovered it, really. Your main job is to build the rapport, you said. How do you do that? Yeah, it's not easy is the first answer. Sometimes you're working through an interpreter. Sometimes you're not. So you just really have to begin by listening. You have to listen without judgment. You have to ask questions that are going to hopefully harvest some of the information. But the main thing you have to do, Danielle, is you have to try and understand your counterpart. It doesn't matter if you don't agree with them. You just have to understand them without judgment. And I think some people can't understand that I, can't, I, I have to do that and why I have to do that. Because how could I be arrogant enough to get them to do what I say if, if I haven't taken the time and the trouble to understand their, their life and to see the world from, from their eyes? So, so really in the beginning, it's relationship building, it's building up rapport, it's communication, then it's hopefully good communication, and, and then that flips over into negotiation. Mm. And I think in my mind, I'm always conscious when I've moved from communication into negotiation. When you are in the negotiation phase, does honesty work best, or is there some level of gameplay that's employed or some level of misdirection needed? No, you have to use honesty. And the reason that you have to do that, Danielle, is negotiation is based on a lot of trust, even trust in bad people. You have to do that sometimes. And if you get caught out on a lie, then you're never going to get that trust back, are you? It's a bit, mm. bit like a broken glass. You can put it back together again, but it's never going to quite look the same. Mm. And do you have to um, do you have to empathize with the other person? Oh. Like, yeah. Yeah. 100%, yeah, and sometimes you can create tactical empathy and also get them to empathise with you as well. Yeah, empathy is a, is, a, is a huge tool in the box. Not sympathy, but, but empathy, definitely. How, how, do you, how do you do that? What's tactical empathy and how do you get somebody who obviously has a, a pretty strong motivation to do something to empathise with you? Well, you just, you just have to listen and, and come up with the right words. Okay. Are there um are there specific uh turns of phrases or ways to word things that that you find can de-escalate situations? Yeah, just the normal de-escalation tactics that you would use with a colleague that was having a bit of an angry moment. The the normal don't match their voice, keep keep your voice calm. Never say the word I understand because that you don't do you. Mm. Nobody can really understand how somebody else feels and also what the right to understand is, is really not given to you, is it, as such, if that makes sense. How do you mean yeah. about not having the right to understand? Well, if, if somebody says, I, I understand how you feel, A, they don't know that, do they? Because they don't know how you feel. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so that's why it can, sometimes be, it can sometimes be quite a provocative thing to say and, and actually can spark somebody in crisis can can spark them off in the wrong direction. 
Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking with Sue Williams, a hostage negotiator with international organizations in the humanitarian world. The former governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, who died in 2023, was known for his regular work in international hostage negotiations. This show airs in New Mexico, so we are interested in in his legacy. But I'm curious in general, how are political figures useful or detrimental in these situations? Just before I answer that, I think I would want to pay tribute to Bill as well. I um, had a fair bit to do with him and I respected him. And um, he seemed to be one of the rare politicians that could rise above rise above politics to, to help other people. And you're right, he has left a great legacy behind. Mm. I'm going to give you a negotiator's answer to that, I think, and it depends. It really depends on the motivation of the hostage takers. Sometimes by involving politicians, you can make things worse. You can upgrade from a a criminal kidnap, which is probably, none of this stuff's easy, but the criminal kidnap is is a bit more straightforward to deal with than a political kidnap. So if you can try and keep a criminal uh, without upgrading it to a a political, if you can keep it at that level. So so you have to be careful what you ask politicians to do. Obviously, there's lots of diplomacy behind the scenes that people don't know about, and and usually that's a bit safer. Mm. Sue Williams, maybe we can talk now more about the families. Um, I understand that you you work quite a lot with the families as well. What is that piece of it like? I mean, how is it working with families uh, in these situations, which I, I assume is probably the worst thing they've ever experienced? Yeah, the, the first hurdle is actually getting them to believe that it's happened. Because as has been said to me many, many times, we're just ordinary people. This doesn't happen to people like this. This happens in the movies. Mm. But then you have to get their trust and confidence in you because the family can have such a big impact on the outcome of any hostage response particularly or any other crisis response. And so earning their trust and confidence at an early stage is very, very important. Ensuring that they look after themselves, if if there are children in the family, ensuring that they protect the children in some way. But also something which I didn't have to do in the early days of this type of work. For some reason, and I don't understand why, the families get trolled and some people seem to get some degree of pleasure out of bringing an unhappiness to other people and, and enjoying, enjoying the predicament the family find themselves in. And so you have to warn them that there will be those mad, crazy people that will just say that. So you have to warn them also that there may be people who contact them and say that they have their loved one, but that's not true. These days there are quite a few fake kidnappers because mm. they can get enough information off of uh, off of the internet to pretend that they have their loved one. And so because the family are desperate, they want to believe it because it's usually a, a very small amount of money and it's a very quick turnover. But actually it, it's just somebody making some bad people making money out of somebody else's misery. Mm. So you have to warn them about that. Okay. Sue Williams, um, most people, luckily, are never going to be in a hostage situation. Are are there techniques that people can use uh, from your work just in, in day-to-day lives? If, if it's an important contract in some way, a house, a car, even a, a mobile phone, I guess, then take a few minutes out to prepare Try and second guess what um, what the other side is going to say or what they're going to do. Think about what your bottom line is. Think about the research that you've done and what you know your bottom line is. So 
So really, before you go in, you're prepared with information and listen, the, the secrets, listen. And we in, in negotiation, the questions that we ask, we very seldom ask questions that just give you a yes or a no. Occasionally we do it to, to get people used to saying yes is, is one technique. But in general, mostly when we craft a question in the preparation work, we, we look at what, what we can harvest. What information do we, where's our information gaps? What don't we know? And so therefore we, we craft the question around getting the right information that we need. So I would suggest as part of your preparation that that, that took place as well. Okay. And I mean, it's one thing, um, you know, to, to negotiate for, yeah, you're buying a car, let's say, um, it's maybe high stress, but probably low emotion. What about um, in negotiations with family members or loved ones? I think this is probably an area where a lot of people, you know, can relate to having <laughs> tough negotiations among families. Are there any skills for dealing uh, with these more emotional contexts, I suppose? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, actually, because whilst I have negotiated on behalf of family members, that's a whole different ballgame from actually negotiating with family members, mm. uh, children or adults, actually. And and the reason for that is emotion, because you have an emotional involvement with your counterpart, whereas 100%, I never have an emotional commitment to any of the, the people that, that I have negotiated with. So it's a lot harder because, you know, you just press that emotional button and and you can't you can't always stick to what the script would be. But the, the, the main point, whether you're negotiating with people you know or people you don't know, really and truly the key to any good negotiation is to truly listen to what the individual is saying and, and also let people vent. Venting is, is very useful because, you know, when you have something in your mind and then when you say it out loud, it doesn't quite sound the same way as it did in your head, does it? Mm. And so when you allow people to vent, it can sometimes dawn on them what they're saying. I would love to know how you feel about doing this work and why it's meaningful for you. When when I was a, a young detective and you looked into the eyes of people who'd had one of their family murdered or a loved one murdered, you always felt a bit helpless. What can I do? I can't promise you justice. Um, I can't bring them back, That that's for sure. And, and I can't take away your pain. So now when I, I work with families who've had the unthinkable happen to them, Whilst I can never make any promises because too much is out of my control, what I can do is I can say that I will do my very best to bring them back. And I do feel that sometimes I, I can, the majority of times, I can take away, take away their pain. That was Sue Williams, a hostage negotiator and crisis management advisor. You can find out more information about her and all the guests on our programs at peacetalksradio.com. And you can hear Danielle Price's entire interview with Sue at our website, peacetalksradio.com. To hear either one or both parts of this episode, head to our website, peacetalksradio.com, and look for Program 11 in Season 21. That's Program 11 in Season 21 on Hostages. Coming up in part two of our program, we'll hear about personality traits that good negotiators have and how to improve your odds right after this short break.
peacetalksradio.com is where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can see photos of our guests, share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, and importantly, make a donation to keep this program going into the future. Help support us as we help support a culture of peace at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you. Also, the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Thanks, too, for all of the affiliates that carry our program, including our very first KUNM at the University of New Mexico. If you ever have questions or comments for us, you can write us, too, at info at peacetalksradio.com. That's info at peacetalksradio.com. This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Danielle Price, who's looking at the high-stakes world of hostage negotiations. In our first half hour, she talked with a hostage negotiator and someone who'd been taken hostage. Hostage negotiators have one of the most high-stress jobs in the world, and they have to be highly skilled at reading other people's emotions and keeping their own in check. In part one of our program, Danielle talked with a hostage negotiator and someone who'd been taken hostage. As our next guest explains in this part two, these skills are important for any type of negotiating, whether it be for a new car or a higher salary. Dr. Hilary Anger Elfenbein researches the personality traits that make good negotiators and how anybody can improve their skills. Dr. Elfenbein is a professor at the Olin School of Washington University, whose research focuses on emotion and negotiation, among other topics. She and her colleagues have conducted research supporting the common-sense hypotheses that some people have personalities that make them better negotiators than others. But these skills can be developed, and it's possible for you listening to improve your chances at negotiating. Here's our correspondent, Danielle Price, with Dr. Elfenbein. Tell me about your research on individual differences in negotiation. What have we learned from this work? So when I first showed up in this topic area, there was a real dominant perspective from academics that 
people are the rational, so-called the rational man, and that in a negotiation, it didn't really matter of differences from one person to the next. And I think that the common, uh, the common wisdom is, is really quite the opposite. There's a lot of sense among people outside of academic circles that, um, that certain personalities are more typical of successful negotiators. So the common wisdom would be people who are more assertive, people who are more confident, uh, people who are more extroverted. They enjoy interacting with other people. And um, people who are um, maybe more conscientious are able to better prepare. So there, there's this clash or there was this clash between what the academics thought and what most people thought. So we have people do these experiential exercises and voila, um, a lot of the common sense notions tend to be correct on average. So, so the regular person kind of had a better sense of this than, than the academics. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I think it's because the, the research in this topic was really dominated by economists who have a certain mm. perspective on how people actually behave that doesn't necessarily correspond to the way that psychologists see people actually behaving. Okay. Okay. What kind of um, exercises were people involved in the research doing? Sure. So I might give um, half the people in the study a set of instructions to be a buyer and half the people to be a seller and then put them together and see what they come up with. So they would have instructions, for example, um, typically in these studies, there'll be five to eight issues. So they might be negotiating and it's fictional exercise, right? It's a role play. They're trying to put themselves in the role and they might be uh, making a decision together about the price of the car, the color, the warranty. They would have five to eight issues that they have to reach an agreement on. And some of these issues are completely competitive, like price. Obviously, you want to buy, you know, buy low and sell high. Mm -hmm. um, but then some of the other issues are less obvious. So in one example, they actually want the same delivery date. Um, they want a delay. The the car dealer would like to um, order something rather than use up their stock. And the the purchaser is about to go on vacation and rather would take delivery afterwards. So there mm -hmm. are issues where you you don't realize in, it, that that actually you you have compatible cooperative preferences. And then there are issues that are trade offs where maybe we both care about the warranty, but I care one side cares a lot and the other side cares only a little bit. And you see whether people can make efficient trades. So those mm -hmm. are the kind of exercises people do and typically the outcome is uh is is really twofold so the, there's the objective score they reach because these are all scored they know for the issues how, how much how many points they're they're gaining but then also uh, a colleague of mine jared kerhan from mit the two of us validated created a survey about the feelings people have coming out of their negotiations and oh, so we, okay. we would also, and I feel like the field has moved to a point where other people are, are really heavily using this survey as well. We'll also measure coming out of this, how did you feel? And there are huge personality differences in that. More agreeable people tend to feel like they've had a better experience working with others. And more neurotic people tend to feel like they've had a more negative experience working with others. Um, and, you know, it's not surprising because neuroticism at its core is about being sensitive to the negative signals of life.
Hmm. And negotiations is really negative for a lot of people. Actually, Jared has this uh, this study, uh, not something I was involved with, but he he did a survey where where he asked people about life activities. So just people on the street, he just asked them, "Here's a set of life activities. How much do you enjoy them?" And they were things like going to the movies, eating at a restaurant, doing chores. Well, negotiating ranked lower than going to the dentist. <laughs> that's probably enjoy- true for me <laughs> <laughs> people don't enjoy this this is not a fun activity for most people a very small number of people love it for most people it's a chore do we know now is it possible to say what personality traits good negotiators have yeah so the answer is it depends on the kind of negotiation and mm. there's so many different features but i'll put them into two main buckets which are cooperative and competitive Also, you might phrase these as long-term versus short-term. Short-term is what, in general, people think of. Like when I say negotiation, people think of buying a car. And especially buying a new car, you don't even need to trust them. Because you you can lie all you want, but I'm buying a Subaru. It's a new Subaru. The company Subaru is going to stand behind it. I might think that I can't trust you at all, but you're not the person I'm dealing with two years from now. Those are the kinds of negotiations where assertiveness and extroversion are are really valuable for that. That's the kind of negotiation where the general uh, stereotype really does apply. But then you have the long-term negotiations where working real high quality working relationships and implementation really come in into play. Now, I live in St. Louis, Missouri. Right now I'm from New York City originally, but I live in St. Louis where which is what I would call an old economy. So mm. people in St. Louis make physical objects. So we have um Boeing here, we have Anheuser-Busch with beer, we have Emerson Electronics. Now, these are the kinds of companies Boeing's a great example where they will have many years long contracts. Because if you are making a specialized part for a fighter jet, they don't want to just, you, you can't just buy those. No one's just making those. You have to mm-hmm. contract for someone to partner with you to make exactly, exactly the thing you want. Those are negotiations where if you're just a uh, you know, gunslinging, assertive person, that's a terrible personality fit. Okay. Because you're, you're trying to create a, a working relationship that's going to weather the storms of implementation. You know, so if you don't feel like somebody's going to come through for you three years from now, that's not a good deal. So I you see. can see how that's the kind of context where you want somebody who's agreeable, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's a good listener who can build trust. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about negotiations that are more coercive or high stress, like hostage situations? Where would that fall in this continuum? Yeah, yeah. So hostage negotiations in particular are fascinating about the kinds of traits that are are necessary in the in in the in this high stress, high stakes moment. And um the work that I've done in this area has really been about the teams, not about just the individuals, but the teams because these are large teams working together with a very distinct set of roles. And the big aha looking at these kinds of roles, and I'm happy to to list a few of them, is that people need strong emotional intelligence. Mm. And if you could just say, I have one trade I'm going to select for to do this job well, it's about emotional skills. And it's such a high stress job that the lead negotiator actually has a secondary negotiator 
who is equally skilled. They might actually take turns. The primary and the secondary might take turns from one incident to the next. They're equally skilled. But the secondary, their job is to support the primary, not just to bounce ideas, but literally to be there as an emotional support because mm. of the extreme stress. That, that, that it's, it's hard to imagine a more stressful job. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is. Um, could you tell me more about these emotional skills? Are there are there specific traits that that people look for um, for this job? For looking at, at hostage negotiations, it's helpful to distinguish a bunch of skills. Um, one of them is emotion recognition. Can you recognize the emotional states of others? This mm. tends to be tested by showing people photos of facial expressions or audio recordings of vocal tone. And you ask people, <clears throat> what was this person trying to convey? And some people do better on these tests than others. And it's the first primary skill that you look at and you say, you know, the the lead negotiator, really everyone on the team, but especially the lead negotiator, has to be alert to emotional transitions. So at some point, the hostage taker starts to be open at some point to, 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 to a conversation. At some point, they suddenly get angry. You know, when you first start speaking to them, what's their state of mind? Are they stable, unstable? Can you have a conversation with them? Do you need to calm them down first? You know, there's a sense in hostage negotiation that you're constantly trying to buy time, that mm. you, can, you, you need to delay, delay. You want to get into conversation. Sometimes the goal of the conversation is really to delay long enough for the SWAT team to get in place. Mm. The other really big one is emotion regulation. Can you stay calm? And people vary. People vary in how calm they can stay. And it's 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 usually an asset in life, but there are some jobs where you don't need that. So those are the two biggest ones. Another big one is how good you are at managing the emotions of other people, right? We can never control other people. We can never control what other people feel. But some people are better at at massaging that, right? Some people are better at soothing others. And that's a skill that the lead negotiator absolutely needs. I spoke with Thomas Olson, who was held for an extended time by the Nusra Front in Syria, as well as Sue Williams, who's a crisis management consultant who used to lead the hostage crisis negotiation unit with the British police. And both of them really emphasize the importance of empathy and honesty in negotiating with people who are holding hostages. And they both kind of said, you know, that this is, it's really important for you to try to understand where they're coming from and try to understand. And I wanted to ask you, are empathy and honesty always the best strategy? Or are there times when a, a more strategic or manipulative approach is better? That's a great question. And I would actually say, and because empathy has three components and I think you always need the first one. And then the second and third, you may sometimes want or not want, usually probably not want in a hostage situation. So the first layer of empathy is perspective taking. Can I see the world the way you see the world? Can I understand through your eyes? And that is 100% always helpful always, because I can't work with somebody. I can't buy a car from somebody. I can't stand someone down from murdering another person if I don't understand how they got to this moment, what they want. What do I have to give this person that's valuable to them? What resources are not valuable to them? What would it take to upset them? What would it take 
what, what, how can I, how can I give them something that they want? That's that first layer. And you, you absolutely need that every single time. Then the second and third layers are where sometimes it would be helpful, sometimes not. And that, so the first layer is, do I know how you see the world? And the second layer is, do I care? And the third layer mm-hmm. is, am I going to do something about it? And that's where I actually think in general, the hostage negotiator really wants to block out numbers two and three. Uh, because, you know, you're holding 20 people in a bank. I don't want to sympathize with you. I want to understand you. I want to know what will it take to get you to walk out with your hands up. But I don't want to feel, I, I don't want to care how you feel. I, I have a yeah. job to do, which is to get you the heck out of there. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. When we talk about the importance of emotional skills, emotional intelligence, for negotiators in the hostage situation, I want to emphasize that not everyone on the team needs every single emotional skill. So I wrote a paper I called Emotional Division of Labor. And so the primary negotiator needs basically every single skill. But then there are people on the team who don't. So the recorder is an example of somebody who needs to be very good at reading the room because they're not just writing down the words, they're writing down the emotional transitions, what they're noticing. But they don't, for example, need to influence other people's emotions because they're, they're really just recording things. Mm. And then you have people like, um, the, uh, the tactical team. So the commander of the tactical team needs to be very good at, um, at recognizing others' emotions and understanding, uh, perspective taking. But the sniper, the sniper is fascinating, by the way. The sniper does not need to be good at expressing their emotions, influencing others' emotions, because they're, they're, they're not doing that, right? They're caught, they're silent. A good sniper has excellent emotion recognition skills and excellent self-regulation because they're there for hours. They need to keep their attention up and they need to be good at recognizing the emotions of the person they're aiming at. Because when that person um, is calm, the sniper has a different job than when that person is highly activated. So the sniper is an example of somebody who, you know, I mean, the primary negotiator needs every single skill that's out there. But other people on the team like the sniper, they need two skills really, really good. At, and the other skills really are irrelevant to them. And and what's neat about this, and this is actually a kind of happy ending, is that emotional intelligence, you know what, you can develop it, but a lot of people are born with better than worse and um, early childhood is, is formative. So as an adult, it's very hard to say, I'm going to move the needle entirely and improve. Mm. It'd be like saying, I'm going to move the needle on spatial reasoning. Mm. But but the the happy part of this idea of division of labor is that everyone doesn't have to be good at everything. Joining us today on Peace Talks Radio is Dr. Hilary Anger Elfenbein, professor of organizational behavior at the Olin Business School. Hilary Anger Elfenbein is known for her research on emotion in the workplace and negotiation. Is it possible to develop these skills or these traits? Uh, if you don't naturally have them, um, how can someone, you know, improve their ability to negotiate if if I am not naturally agreeable or naturally good at reading emotions? This is a great question, and it gets at the definition of personality. So personality is thought of by academics as your preferred way of being. So there's your behavior over time and your personality would be kind of your average across times. And what I love about the power of that definition is that it says 
personality isn't destiny. So an extrovert tends to go to parties more than an introvert, but an extrovert doesn't spend their entire life at parties. They're at parties more often, but they're, they're also making a choice every time they go to a party. It's a choice. And that's, that's where we can actually dig into that and say, you know what? An introvert can force themselves to go to a networking event, right? They can force themselves. They may not enjoy it, but they also may have coping mechanisms like I will go to a network event as an introvert with at least one person I know. And, and that's, that's what you can do with some of these personality traits in negotiation. So I may be going into a negotiation where I need to be assertive and maybe I'm not an assertive person naturally, but at that moment, being assertive is a choice. So my general tendency, if you took the average over my entire last two months, may be not very assertive. But that's a distribution I can draw from and say, this is a moment where I'd like to make a different choice about how to behave than my natural tendency would would um, encourage me. And I think if you think that way, you say, like, you know, you don't actually have to change your personality. You don't. And in fact, we should we need to embrace our personality. It's incredibly hard to change. Hmm. Um, the, the genetics research shows that personality is largely 50 percent genetic. A baby is born introverted or extroverted in a way that corresponds years later to the way that that young person behaves. There's there's really little there's really it's it's actually hard to change it. And I would also advocate, by the way, that you don't want to because it's your authentic self and you should embrace your authentic self. But you don't need to be that authentic self every single minute of the day. Right. When you go into a car dealership, um, just choose to behave more assertively. And and there are techniques and we do in, in the in coursework about how what are the things you can focus on that help you be more assertive. And just the spoiler is if you do your research about what the market standard is for whatever it is you're negotiating, it makes you more assertive because instead of framing it as I'm asking for things, you frame it as I am making sure I'm treated fairly. And I have Mm -hmm. a piece of paper where I've run numbers to determine what is the fair market of this car, of this salary. And it makes people much more assertive because they're not thinking that they're demanding anything. They're thinking that um, I'm expecting in life to be treated fairly. And here's what fairness looks like. Are there any other techniques that that you could mention? Um, Well, with empathy, some people are better able to imagine what other people are going through, but it's also a choice to sit down and brainstorm it. Hmm. So a lot so, of times people, when they're negotiating, they've really been focused on their own perspective. What do I need? What are my numbers? You know, what, at what point do I walk away because I have a better alternative? And what people don't often uh, think as much about, and at least in my courses at this aha moment is I should run the same analysis for my counterparty. So mm. what is it what is it I'm trying you know I'm I'm negotiating over job offer and I know what the fair market is and I know what I would do if this deal falls through I would take this other job instead. Well a lot of people don't make that second step and say well what would the employer do if I don't take the job and maybe it's a job market where they have 100 people applying then mm-hmm. you realize okay well I need to approach this differently than if I'm the only one who really has this skill set then that will change it. and but it's a choice it's actually it's some people are better than others at figuring that out but it's a choice to actually sit down and try yeah yeah is this is this different in 
negotiations that are like more um emotional or so like buying a car or negotiating a salary these are like kind of transactional negotiations but i'm thinking of like um negotiations with family members about you know highly emotional issues like uh disagreements over family plans or over covid restrictions or something like that are there different techniques or different skills that would come into play in that sort of setting absolutely the first thing is to realize that when a situation is highly emotional, and I would phrase it as a highly activated situation, we tend to fall back into dominant responses. So if I say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to work harder at taking the other person's perspective, just to realize that's a little harder to do when the situation is highly activated, because I'm going to fall back in to not thinking that way. If I'm training myself into that, it's it's easier to train yourself into into a new behavior when the stakes are lower when when you're less less uh feeling less intense so first just to realize that um but negotiating the ones you described so high stakes there's the hostage negotiation example where there's high stakes but it's not a long-term relationship mm. and then what you were just saying about family that's high stakes but there is a long-term relationship and i think in the latter case the long-term nature is where you really can dig in because you can try to have those conversations in a calm way in advance, if you can anticipate them in advance. So um, who's doing chores? That can get very aggravating for couples, right? Yeah. Who's picking up the kids? Who's doing this? Who's making dinner? Um, however, th- those are upsetting at the time. They're activated at the time, but you actually could, when when life is calm, say, Let's work these out at this moment. And so the the fact that it's a long-term relationship actually gives you the opportunity to have those negotiations when you aren't in a stressful high stakes moment. So is it is it useful then to like take a pause and say let's come back to this tomorrow or you know let's take a break until we're calmer? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're upset with somebody negotiating over chores, it's it's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hillary Anger Elfenbein, how important are expectations in negotiations? If I go into a negotiation expecting to lose, then am I more likely to have a bad outcome? Absolutely. The very most influential work on individual differences in negotiation actually looks at attitudes, chronic attitudes. So some people feel um, more empowered and some people feel less. Some people actually, a really great um, area is about your, um, is about your beliefs about negotiation. Is this a skill that can be learned or are some people just better at it than others? And if all you do is give people a brief survey about that, you'll see that the people who think it's learnable work harder. They do better and they do better because they're, they're literally just working harder. They're taking longer. They're preparing more. And so your beliefs are incredibly important. Being nervous in a negotiation is never a good idea. It's it's never helpful. Hmm. And when I say good idea, it's not like you choose to be nervous. Yeah. But it, it's never helpful because if somebody cares about you and they feel and you're nervous, then they feel then through sheer emotional contagion, they're uncomfortable too. Okay. But yeah. if somebody doesn't care about you and they detect you're nervous, now they're the shark smells blood. Sure. 
So would this be like a, a fake it till you make it situation where you, you know, if you pretend that you that you're more confident and that you think you're going to do well in this and then that will help you? The best way, and I wouldn't really call it faking it, is to do your homework, do your research, walk into that negotiation knowing what's fair. And what's fair would be defined as, in general, what does this transaction yield? So fair market for a salary would be what this job tends to pay in this in this area of the country. And, the, and, and that, when you walk in with that, it's not really faking it because you're walking mm-hmm. in with the mindset of this is, this is what fairness looks like. But the yeah. other thing you, you do is practice. Practice makes confidence. And so actually in my class, I have some people do something called the negotiation gym. And the idea is that this is a muscle. You can exercise it. So you get, you build confidence, not by faking it, but you build confidence by small wins. I send my students out into the world to negotiate over things they wouldn't normally negotiate over. And they do things like they call up their credit card company. So they call up, they call up the phone company, they call up the, they, um, they call up any, uh, any kind of vendor they have. And they just say, Hey, can you cut the price of my, um, alarm system? Can you, uh, they, they go shopping and they ask for discounts on, on products they would buy. And, and, and this is really nerve wracking. Mm. But you do it where there's low stakes and you do it politely. So I have examples of questions. So you don't walk into Macy's and demand a discount. You walk into Macy's and you say, um, are there discounts you can offer? And you walk in, you're buying uh, jewelry and you say, uh, and you say, um, what kinds of promotions do you have going on? Or is this the best price you can give? And you know what? If they say this is the best price you can give, then you say, all right, well, I learned the answer to that. And what I tell people in class is that, you need to get comfortable with no if you're mm. going to get to yes. And mm. so you walk in, I, I, the, for people who are nervous enough, actually the one I start with, and my friends who are in, in um, the restaurant industry always tell me they hate this, which is why it's a good, a good one to do, is walk into a restaurant and whatever table they show you, say you'd like a different table oh, and offer no explanation. And they'll say sometimes, you know, well, that table doesn't have a server or that table's taken, but you you actually want to have no said to you so that you realize, oh, the world doesn't crumple. I don't crumple into a heap of, of sadness if someone says no. So it's it's not about the trying to get to the yes in that case. It's about accepting the no. It's about both. It's about both. You've been listening to researcher Dr. Hilary Anger Elfenbein. Dr. Elfenbein is a professor and chair of organizational behavior at the Olin School of Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find links to some of her work and more information about her and all of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can hear Danielle's complete interviews with all of our guests. And it's also where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. There as well, you can see photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, and make a donation to keep this program going into the future at peacetalksradio.com. Support for our nonprofit effort comes from listeners like you, as we mentioned. We also get some help from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Also on our team is Nola Daves-Moses, the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated, the nonprofit organization that produces Peace Talks Radio. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For correspondent Danielle Price, and co-founder Suzanne Kreider and the rest of our crew. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to, and importantly for supporting, Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.